0: For the rest of the 20th century because it introduces a language of violence, a language of bloodshed and a very strong argument that there is an unfulfilled dream that Irish nationalism must uh, continue to pursue.
1: That was Heather Jones reflecting on the legacy of the Easter Rising. A lot of the great
2: inventions or great moments happened very quickly in a kind of cauldron of ideas and progress and then a lot of things have played out of course over a long time. But this was just like, it's almost a, like a fast-forward button you pressed.
1: And that was Ben Wilson talking about his new book on the 1850s. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of March 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Heather Jones. Heather is a historian at LSE, specialising in the First World War period. She is also the presenter of an upcoming BBC Radio 4 series entitled The Easter Rising 1916, which explores the events and legacy of the famed Irish armed uprising as we approach its centenary. I spoke to Heather down the line a little while back to find out more. Prior to the Easter Rising, what was the political situation in Ireland?
0: Prior to the Easter Rising, uh, there's quite a lot of debate about what the situation was in Ireland. Ireland had achieved Home Rule, which had been something that Irish nationalists had been campaigning for in, in the House of Commons, really for almost 30 years. And so that was a huge achievement for them. That was an achievement for the Irish Parliamentary Party. Home Rule went on the statute books in, in 1914, just after the outbreak of the First World War. So there was a sense that, in a way, um, Home Rule had been achieved, and this was a, this, this was something that Irish nationalists had, 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 had been working hard for, and so that, that goal was there. Ireland then could use that devolved government, which Home Rule would bring. It was a chance to have Irish affairs administered in Dublin, while uh, national affairs remained administered by Westminster. And Irish could, Ireland could then use that to maybe achieve greater independence in the future through constitutional political means. Now, the problem with Home Rule was that obviously Northern Ireland, um, and particularly the unionist community there, were vehemently opposed to any devolved government going to Dublin from London. And in 1914, they remained very much in opposition to Home Rule. There'd been a crisis in the summer of 1914 about how they were going to adjust to the implementation of Home Rule. And there was a sense that perhaps some kind of partition might be on the cards, uh, might be a solution to that bottleneck that that had arisen, how to find a solution that would please Northern Unionism um, and that would uh, allow Irish nationalism to have the home rule that that had had now gone through Parliament. So Ireland, in, in the First World War before 1916, is in many ways a place of constitutional change. Some historians argue that it's actually pre-revolutionary, that there is a sense of, particularly within Dublin intelligentsia circles, of more radical nationalism coming to the fore, um, a real interest in a a Gaelic identity, a kind of revolutionary language. There's increasing interest in socialism as well. Uh, And so these tendencies are there. But they are a minority. And the majority of the population, the nationalist population, are actually quite content with Home Rule. Real concern is actually with unionism. Now, the First World War has, in a way, shaken up the whole situation. What had looked like a crisis in Ireland in summer of 1914 that possibly could turn violent, uh, with people taking up arms on both sides of the Home Rule debate, those against it taking up arms to oppose Home Rule being implemented in, 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 around Northern Unionism, those in favour uh, taking up arms to ensure it would be implemented. That crisis has, has, in a way, disintegrated because of the outbreak of the war. The First World War, ironically, prevented war in Ireland in 1914 um, because all sides rally around what they see as a common United Kingdom cause. Um, And there's a very strong wave of support for uh, the cause of Britain in the war, for poor Catholic little Belgium that's been invaded by Germany as it's seen in in, in Irish uh, public opinion. Uh, And so in a way, this calms the Irish public opinion situation down going into 1915. However, the losses in the war, and particularly the losses of Irish troops at Gallipoli, do lead to increasing war weariness and this is something that those radical nationalist minorities in Ireland can pick up on and do uh, recruit from. So there's a sense uh, in Ireland in 1915 of war weariness driving uh, dissent and discontent and all of this feeds into 1916. So Ireland by 1916 is a very complex situation, a place in the midst of constitutional transition, uh, a place where the future looks like Home Rule will will be implemented once the First World War has ended, but still with that problem of what do you do with northern unionists who are opposing home rule, who are absolutely refusing to accept and prepare to take up arms to resist it? And how do, you, how do you deal with increasing war weariness and those radical nationalist fringes that are operating within the intelligentsia and increasingly further afield as well?
1: Who were the actual people or the groups that decided to lead the Easter Rising? And, and what exactly were they hoping to achieve, seeing as home rule was apparently already on the cards?
0: The Easter Rising is very complex because there were a number of different groups involved. And in a way, it's only a handful of secret conspirators who actually plan the Rising and bring it about. And that's the Military Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. It's a Fenian organisation. It has strong links to America. Uh, It wants an Irish Republic, a 32-county Irish Republic. Now, it doesn't have a mass organisation. By its nature, it's secret Um, Irish Uh, rebellions in the past had always been foiled by informers and by information seeping out so the authorities knew a rebellion was planned so the IRB focused very much on a small cadre of really trusted figures they need more people involved to wage an uprising during the war. They see the First World War really as an opportunity. Um, They see the United Kingdom is distracted elsewhere, it's distracted on the continent. And and they're also a bit concerned about the extent of Irish public support for Britain's cause, which they see as a kind of anglicisation of Ireland. And, and a waning of kind of a Gaelic nationalist Catholic spirit. So they're quite concerned about that. So the the, the IRB really see an uprising as a way to, to relight the torch of a kind of Irish republicanism and a republicanism that could include uh, Protestants as well as Catholics, because obviously a republican state would be uh, open to all. It's the idea of the republic. So they infiltrate other organisations to try and and, and win fellow travellers who will join with them in an uprising. And so the IRB conspirators infiltrate the Irish Volunteer Force um, and particularly infiltrate those Irish volunteers who, who haven't gone to fight in France the Irish Volunteer Force was a pro-Home Rule militia. Um, it was intended to help support the implementation of Home Rule should the Ulster Union oppose it by, f- by force of arms uh, through what was an equ- its equivalent, the Ulster Volunteer Force, uh, which was anti-Home Rule. The IRB infiltrate the Irish Volunteer Force. They also bring on board the Irish Citizen Army, which is a very small uh, socialist uh, group, which was formed in 1913 during uh, major strikes in Dublin to protect striking workers and protect their meetings from being disrupted by the police. These are the main groups that launched the uprising, so the Irish Republican Brotherhood and, and the groups that's infiltrated, the Irish Volunteer Force uh, and the, the Irish Citizen Army. There's also a group of women, uh, them Naman, who are radical nationalist women, um, who, who are supporters of of the cause of full Irish independence, uh, and who are affiliated to the Irish uh, Volunteer Force. And they join, uh, join in as well, mainly in auxiliary roles, uh, so cooking, uh, nursing the wounded. Um, but interestingly, in the Irish Citizen Army, which was very egalitarian, women actually serve as combatants in the Rising. So in, in, in that organisation, women women fight and take commanding roles in some cases, such as Countess Markovic.
1: What kind of military capabilities did the people who who led the rising have? Because they were taking on a very powerful country in Great Britain.
0: This is a war within a war. So, if one thinks of the United Kingdom at the time, Ireland is part of it in the same way that Scotland and Wales are now, except there isn't a land border. Uh, there's a sea border. But this whole process is is a war within the United Kingdom, which is at war at the time in in Europe and globally, and um, and it is it is the culmination of decades of. Uh, Irish radicalism, Irish nationalism, building towards independence, partly stemming from British misrule in Ireland, uh, partly stemming from an internal cultural uh, and long, long-developed tradition that, that makes Irish nationalism and Irish culture very, very different to some of the cultures in the other parts of, the, of, the, of, of, of these islands. So it's in, it's important to think of it in the, in the, in those ways. The groups who are launching the rising are very, very small. We're talking about 1,500 people involved in the uprising, possibly 300, uh, approximately 330 or so in the Irish Citizen Army. The figures vary. And a very small handful in the IRB Council, you know, five to seven figures here. We're really talking very small number of people who actually know about the rising and are involved in planning it. And it's this group that by by launching the rising against a much more powerful um uh, establishment in, in, in Ireland I mean, against what's effectively the, the British authorities who govern through Irish civil servants and Irish and Irish police force. It's effectively through doing this that this group reawake a, set, a very strong sense of um, Irish nationalism and a sense of, of a demand for full independence and move the public away from a home rule position amongst Irish nationalists, moving it towards the desire for a 32-county independent republic. And partly this is because of the way the Rising is crushed. Um, initially, actually, the Rising is viewed very negatively by much of the population, and particularly by the population of Dublin, who see their city uh, destroyed by the violence and civilians killed. It's the repression of the Rising um, that is absolutely key to, to, to then reawakening this very radical uh, Irish nationalism and, and, and creating a sense of of, of, of compassion and uh, support for the rebels.
1: How did Britain respond to to the Rising, you said that the repression contributed to, to the growth in, in Irish nationalism. So was it very heavy-handed?
0: The way the Rising is put down uh, was, in the context of the time, extremely draconian. One has to remember, the government uh, in, in, in London had been dealing with Ireland through kid gloves for much of the previous 20 years. There was an awareness that resentment in Ireland had built up, particularly because of the famine and because of economic uh, expropriation of the country uh, through, through through British rule. And so there had been this whole policy of killing uh, Irish nationalism with kindness. So a redistribution of, of wealth, um, land acts that allowed the population to buy their own land, um, and a sense of trying to, to reform Irish rule. Home rule was part of this package. It was, again, this idea of trying to reform the way that the British rule operated in Ireland uh, that would then allow a better relationship between uh, London and Dublin and the rest of the country. Now, 1916 goes completely against that historical tendency. It does so because this is a this is a Britain at war. This is a situation where on the continent, British soldiers are being shot if they if they don't carry out their duty in the trenches. So the idea that men who've launched an insurrection in Dublin, who've shot uh, police, who've shot uh, British soldiers and also Irish troops in the British Army who are diverted from France to fight the rebels. That they would somehow be treated leniently is anath- anathema to to the prime minister. It doesn't make any sense to to, to, to figures in Westminster, and so the, the rising is really repressed very harshly. There's a curfews, there's house-to-house searches, and in, in fact to actually to actually force the rebels to surrender and drive them out of the buildings they've occupied in the centre of Dublin. A gunboat is brought up the the River Liffey, the Helga, and it shells the centre of Dublin, it shells the commercial district, actually. Again, Irish middle class figures in Dublin feeling very ambivalent about the results of that. Um, And fires are deliberately set to try and burn the buildings where the rebels are located, to burn them out from, from those locations. After after the, the the rebels surrender, the leaders are executed, and not just the leaders, but also some figures who are only really quite tendentiously related to the actual rising. So the brother of Patrick Pierce, Patrick Pierce, a leading figure in the rising, his brother is executed. Um, he was only a very minor player in this. James Connolly is executed when very badly wounded, and historians really generally agree that he was probably dying anyway, and um, is executed sitting in a chair. These kinds of actions are incredibly harsh. And it's a huge shock to an Irish public that had become used to a British rule that was becoming gentler and that had got used to a sense that they were part an equal part of a United Kingdom and had equal citizenship with all the other members of of that uh, geopolitical space. Now, What's also key is this is obviously very useful for radical nationalists who are part of a kind of European-wide movement of returning to an idea of a romantic peasantry, a gaelicisation culture, a search for authenticity, a search for roots and purity in nationalism. Um, and that's very popular in certain intelligentsia circles in Ireland. And it's very popular in certain parts of the country where there has been a lot of Anglophobia due to the famine. And so this kind of draconian repression just absolutely plays into, into that swathe of, of public opinion, who then mobilize around the dead, execute a leadership and make them into martyrs.
1: And had the leaders of the rising, had they anticipated that it would be crushed like this? And in a way, were they looking for martyrdom?
0: That's a really interesting question. After the rising, there was a very uh, strong drive, particularly by the women family members of those executed, to make them into Catholic martyrs. There's a very strong kind of theological martyrology built around them. Part of the cult of the leaders is created through the masses that are held in their memory at the various points in the cycle of of Catholic bereavement. uh, And and mass cards are handed out in Dublin. And this is a way to to politically mobilise because obviously the state can't crack down on on, on that in wartime. It can crack down on other things, political dissent, but it can not crack down on the process of funerals and rituals of bereavement. And so this is used to make them into martyrs. As part of this, a language of blood sacrifice is very much attached to these men and the idea that they knew their destiny. They had accepted death. They wanted death. They were going out to die. Now, for some of the leaders, this is absolutely true, particularly Patrick Pierce, who really believed that, for example, the, the earth needed to be watered with the red wine of the battlefield. It's very much a language of World War I, actually, that he's also absorbing and applying to Irish nationalism. But for others... This isn't the case. Some of the Irish volunteers who are fighting under the auspices of the IRB in the Rising aren't intending to die, uh, genuinely think that they, they get very short notice of the, of the fact they're actually going to a Rising at all. Many of them turn up on the morning of, of events and are only told when they arrive that this is going to be a Rising. They're not in on the plot until very late in the day. They see it as something that could possibly succeed militarily. Figures like James Connolly. Connolly had military experience. He saw this as something that was meant to be a military act. And so there's a lot of confusion about what they actually intended. Was it meant to be a blood sacrifice from the start? Or was it just figures like Pierce, who knew that this was futile, this was not going to succeed, but this crackdown and the fact they were likely to be executed, which Pierce and also Sean McDermott, another key leader, really knew that that would trigger public opinion and support for them. The question's still out there. I think it's probably a mix of both. Some of them went into this planning a blood sacrifice some of them genuinely uh, wanted to succeed militarily. And some of them started out thinking it was a military event and realised they hadn't got a hope um, but went ahead with it anyway for reasons of honour um, and, and got caught up in it.
1: On a similar note, what was the, the feeling of the, the Easter Rising leaders in terms of shedding blood? How did they feel about that?
0: Well, here it, it's very interesting because I think Pierce, as a figure starts out with an idea that this this possibly... Um, is going to be a blood sacrifice, but that it should be a blood sacrifice by the rebels. He He's very idealistic about the nature of fighting. And in fact, he hasn't really got much of a strategic idea. He, he's in the general post office, the key headquarters of the rebels in the centre of Dublin, waving a sword and writing speeches and propaganda for most of the rising. Uh, the military side of things is, is taken over and really being organised by James Connolly, who's in the same location. And here's, as the, as, as the week goes on, is appalled by the level of civilian bloodshed that, that happens. Um, perhaps naively, it seems he hadn't really taken on board what, what, would, what would ensue if you occupy buildings in the centre of Dublin in a situation of wartime where the of the Realm Act is already applied. Uh, the government can crack down as heavily as it likes, as quickly as it likes. And these are very heavily populated areas, slum areas, right next door to these key buildings that the rebels have occupied. He doesn't seem to have realised this is going to lead to huge civilian casualties, and it does. Um, civilians are caught in the crossfire. Many people live hand-to-mouth in these areas. So they actually can't get food. They don't have more food in their homes for more than 24 hours. So they have to go out to get food, um, and they're caught in the crossfire, and they're killed. And we have 40 children killed, for example, in the Easter Rising who were rarely spoken about in Irish history until very recently. So Pierce, as the week goes on, becomes very shocked by this. And it's one of the reasons why he surrenders, to prevent further loss of life, uh, of civilian life. He's also very shocked by the looting, which is quite naive as well, because obviously these these are very poor areas. Law and order break down because an uprising has broken out. People go out to loot the shops. Um, and, and he's appalled that an Irish population could do this because he's quite purist ideas about the lovely, beautiful nature of the Irish people. Now, obviously, Dubliners are much more pragmatic. And when they can't get out to get food and the shop next door has been, has been destroyed by the rising, well, you know, they, they take their chances. And public opinion also doesn't rally up to support the rebels nationwide. The rising doesn't spread. Um, so Pierce is left uh, facing the situation and, and in his surrender says that it is to stop further civilian loss of life. But it seems that the rising leaders were very naive about the possibility of civilian casualties. They were prepared to see their own men die. They were prepared to die themselves. They hadn't given much thought to what would happen to the rest of uh, of, of Dublin's population.
1: And so although the rising didn't, didn't achieve what it may have set out to do, in the long run, because of its legacy, did they actually get what they wanted?
0: I think... In terms of the executions, at the time of the executions, one of the factors that's interesting is the leaders who are executed are very calm about it. They're, they seem to be fully accepting of this type of death of the firing squad. They're incredibly brave, many of them asked, to look the firing squad in the eye. And part of this is because they do get what they wanted here. This is the, this is the, the, the sacrificial death for Ireland that for some of them, uh, figures like Tom Clark, who's an old Fenian, had been something that had uh, really embraced for a long time mentally before the rising. Did they get what they want in terms of their ideals? No, they didn't. Because if you look at the Proclamation uh, of Irish Independence, which is read out by Patrick Pierce at the start of the uprising, drafted by the key seven leaders, it aspires to an Ireland that is egalitarian. It's addressed to Irish men and Irish women, so egalitarian and gender grounds. It talks about cherishing all the children of the nation equally, um, which means both economically cherishing all, uh, all, all the children, creating a more egalitarian uh, society, but also cherishing children of different religions, all the children of the nation equally, is also a reference to Protestant and Catholic in Ireland. And the idea that, that, that their new republic would be a place without sectarianism, that doesn't happen. We see a very sectarian island developing both north and south as, as the 20th century goes on. And they also aspire most importantly in the proclamation to a 32-county independent Irish republic, That doesn't happen. What happens instead is that the Government of Ireland Act in 1920 with partition, uh, allowing Northern Ireland to establish its own Home Rule Parliament. Ironically, the Home Rule solution is then given to Northern Ireland because it's not going to work for Dublin anymore because public opinion is now radicalised for a much greater degree of independence than Home Rule would offer. And so you end up with a divided island. You end up with initially just a free state in the south in the 1920s after a very long and bloody guerrilla war from, from 1919 to 1921. So ultimately, in terms of their political ideals, the rising leaders don't achieve what they want. But what they do achieve is to reawaken a sense of a very strong Irish national identity uh, amongst uh, Irish nationalism. They do achieve sweeping away of Home Rule, which given how strong Home Rule actually was up to 1914, is a major achievement uh, for the rebels. And they do achieve ultimately what we see today, which is is the Republic of Ireland in, in the 26 counties. That is still some achievement. So it's a mixed bag, really. Would they be happy if they could have foreseen the rest of the 20th century ensuing? probably not.
1: Over the course of the 20th century, in all the sort of major events in Irish history and Anglo-Irish history, how important has the Easter Rising, that event, been to to the later participants?
0: The Easter Rising is probably the most important event in 20th century Irish history, if not, in, in fact, the most important event since the Irish famine in the middle of the 19th century for Irish history. It hasn't had the same echo on the other side of the Irish Sea, And it's quite important to point out that it hasn't really been taken up in the same way as a historic moment for United Kingdom history, if you like, in the way that it matters for history in Ireland. It is actually the biggest secession from the United Kingdom to take place. It's hugely significant, ultimately, the the results of the rising, which eventually leads after the War of Independence in 1922 to 26 counties of Ireland leaving the, the United Kingdom. It is, I think, something that overshadows Anglo-Irish relations for the rest of the 20th century because it introduces a language of violence, a language of bloodshed and a very strong argument that there is an unfulfilled dream that Irish nationalism must uh, continue to pursue um, and that one of the means by which that can be pursued is a violent means imitating figures such as Pierce. That's a very dangerous language. Uh, and that language then obviously uh, re-emerges in the 1960s, the late 1960s, when due to the inequalities of the Northern Irish state, you see a return to, again, a, a really violent campaign to try and achieve that 32-county dream that the, the rebels set up in, in 1916. Irish republicanism had always been around before 1916. It's obviously huge in the 1798 uh, rebellion as well. It comes and goes in Irish history, um, but it had, up to 1916, I think really uh, been, been overwhelmed by the Home Rule campaign. And this changes in 1916. So 1916 is this key turning point where where, where there's a shift back to a very strong language of republicanism. The Irish Republic today is a very successful modern state. So it is something I think most Irish people are very proud of. And the 1916 Rising is seen as the moment of origins of that very successful state. What it meant for Northern Ireland and the types of divisions we, we see there to this day is something very different. And so I think when you're talking about the 1916 Rising, you have to remember its successes but also its, its failures and the types of language of violence that it introduced back into Irish history and what that meant for the North um, and the fact that it just didn't have that resonance on the other side of the Irish Sea where I think some of the lessons of the Rising actually aren't learnt by London and we then see similar problems in other situations of decolonisation later on in the 20th century.
1: As we now come up to the centenary, how is the Rising viewed nowadays across Ireland and is it very different in the North?
0: Nowadays the Rising is viewed as a more complex event in Ireland than it would have been 40 years ago. The kind of hagiography that you used to uh, see about the rebel leaders, the way they were described as sort of pure heroes, and a lot of their sort of the warts and all descriptions just weren't there, that's disappeared. We know a lot more about the rising now because new archive sources have been released. Um, applications for pensions by former combatants uh, during this, this period of our uh, what's known as the Irish revolutionary years have been released. Witness statements for tho- from those who were, who were present during the events of the rising uh, have been released into the public domain. You can look at those online. So we know a lot more about it. We know a lot more about how confused the, the different aims of some of the groups were and about the lack of knowledge on the behalf of some of the combatants who turn up and then suddenly discover they're going out and a rising. We know a lot more about it. There's also a much greater reluctance to accept the language of violence. There is a sense amongst a lot of the Irish population that while the Rising's ideals were, for the the main part, very noble and while the leaders behaved uh, during the surrender, particularly in the executions, in in quite a noble way and dignified way, the actual violence of taking up arms without an electoral mandate from the people to do so Mm. was a, a really negative message to send out and one that later on, has had terrible repercussions for Northern Ireland and and, and has been used by the the more recent IRA campaign to justify some of their actions. So there's a much greater ambiguity and indeed negative attitude to the violence of the rebels and the fact that they took up arms at a point where the last election before the Easter Rising had had really returned a home rule mandate.
1: So you presented or you're presenting a BBC Radio 4 series about the Easter Rising. How difficult was it to strike a a sort of neutral tone here when you're dealing with a topic that remains really controversial.
0: It is quite difficult to to strike a neutral tone regarding the 1916 Rising because it's quite an emotive subject in Ireland to this day. Um, It is something which, for example, Northern Unionists feel very negatively about. They see it as a stab in the back uh, launched in Dublin against what was Britain at war and and a stab in the back against those 200,000, 210,000 Irishmen uh, who were serving in the British Army uh, during the First World War. And it's also seen... By, by certain uh, groups in Ireland as well as a very negative, very violent event. And there's a lot of now awareness of, for example, the civilian casualties and the children who are killed, et cetera. Um, so it, it it's a difficult topic to strike a neutral tone about on the other hand, we have some wonderful new historiography about the Rising, written by people like Dermot Ferriter, Fergal McGarry, and we figures like Katrina Crowe in the National Archives, who are really objective about the 1916 Rising and who have been working very hard with these new sources that have been released to really give a balanced understanding of events and to try and help us understand the historical actors in the context of their own time. And um, This is an, an imperial world. This is a very different world to our own. And to try and understand that relationship between the First World War and the war that the rebels are hoping to unleash in Ireland, all of that now, I think, allows us to see the rising within its historical context. And that allows us to be more neutral about it, to step back from some of the languages about the rising that that were present in the last 30 years, particularly in Northern Ireland, and to look at the actual historical event itself. And I think that has really helped us when we were making the programme, that, that, that wealth of new historiography.
1: That was Heather Jones. Heather's series, The Easter Rising 1916, begins tomorrow, Friday the 18th of March, on BBC Radio 4 at 11am. And you can read an article by Heather in the March 2016 edition of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, we have pieces on the dark side of Elizabethan England, Sex Under Henry VIII, and The Most Delicious Dishes in History. You can get hold of our March issue now in all good news agents and our many digital formats. And still on the subject of the Easter Rising, here is an extract from the Voices from the BBC Archives 1916 CD, where you'll hear from two participants in the events of Easter 1916.
3: Two contrasting stories of the week's fighting come from Judge Lynch on the rebel side and from a British officer. For the first three or four days, things were quite enough with us. But coming on towards Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, things began to get hot and we were getting under a pretty heavy fire. And Sholdyce's area especially, just at the corner of North King Street, was under a very heavy fire. And his place was nicknamed Riley's Fort. I think Riley had been the name of the public house owner who owned it at some time, but was then closed up The heavy fighting lasted until the surrender, practically. The soldiers borrowed through from house to house, and we discovered afterwards, of course, long afterwards, that many men found in the house that we had no knowledge of, who knew nothing about us, who weren't connected with the thing at all, were unfortunately shot by the military. Presumably, they thought that they had just thrown away their guns and come back and were hiding behind the women, as General Maxwell said afterwards, we all were. At any rate, some of the soldiers, who appeared to be either very stupidly led or if they had any leader with them at all, they came through and the last house before Cuckoo Lane. Now, they turned into Cuckoo Lane at the double, about a dozen of them. And this was just completely under our fire. Frank Scholdeis was in the malt house, just covering the place, absolutely. We had other men in the trenches that were dug for sewage and so on for the new houses that were going up. Drains were dug. The houses weren't built, you see. And we had men there. And these lads were wiped out in no time. It was, uh, of course, a tragic thing in many ways. When you, one had to be sorry for them, they were only very young boys. And, in fact, uh, Lefton and Shoulders told me that when he went to collect the rifles with others, he hit so that he heard one lad saying, Oh, Mammy, Mammy, which was uh,
4: terrible. Well, we were marching into Dublin. That was our orders to march into Dublin at a point... Clan William House, Mount Street Bridge, we ran into terrific rifle fire from houses all round. We were expecting it, but not quite as badly as we got it. We lost 11 officers and about 90 men that day, and we didn't get very much further than that point. Clan William House, Mount Street Bridge. And that's where their main resistance started. We had to bomb them out wasn't fierce fighting in the street. You were being shot at from all the houses all around. Our older men that had been with us right from the beginning of the war reacted in a splendid way. But we had a lot of recruits who'd just joined up under, I think it was called the Derby scheme at that time, which was conscription. And they hadn't been with us more than a, two or three months. They knew nothing. They'd never fired a rifle in their lives. And one man shouted to me, he said, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm wounded. And it was the kick of his own rifle that had, he'd never fired a rifle before and he thought he was wounded. I told him, I said, don't be so soft, you're not wounded at all, it's the rifle, your own rifle that's done it. With no clearly defined front line, it was impossible to tell friend from foe. The only way you knew your enemy was because he was shooting at you. The people in the streets that didn't, shoot at you, they weren't looked upon as enemies. It was a horrible situation. Being fired at from you didn't know where, you didn't know who your enemies were, you didn't know who were your friends, you didn't know which houses were occupied by the rebels. Oh, it was a very unpleasant day.
1: So that was an extract from 1916, Voices from the BBC Archive, which is available both as a CD and a digital download from retailers such as Amazon and iTunes.
5: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need
1: to hire? You need Indeed. Our second interview this week is with the author and historian Ben Wilson. Ben's past books have covered subjects including the Royal Navy, Georgian Society and the Free Press. For his new book, Heyday, Britain and the Birth of the Modern World, he's turned his attention to the 1850s which he believes was an absolutely pivotal decade in Britain's past. Our Reviews editor, Matt Elton, met up with Ben recently, and he began by asking him whether people living in the 1850s recognised the transformations taking place around them.
2: For sure, yes. Particularly in Britain, I think the great exhibition helps with that because it, it gave a sort of physical manifestation to it, and it was seen as... Um, marking that progress. And you have so the, the, the Great Exhibition started as a way of kind of it started in the period of, of economic depression. It was a way of trying to showcase British um manufacturers to the world. But it became by 1851 it coincided with this phenomenal boom, like one of the biggest booms in human history from about 1850 to to the mid-1870s, when the, the global economy expands by something like five or six times. Um and you get these great sort of population migrations to Australia and New Zealand, um, the United States. Um, whole world's taking on a completely different shape, and that's becoming very identifiable at this time, that the, the gold's being sort of injected into the, the, the world system, but not just golds, not just the sort of the motor of economic change, it's a huge amount of productivity. Um, the British sort of see this sort of global boom, and they kind of put themselves at the center of it. So, for, for, it's very rare in British history that that things aren't sort of miserable or ironic. There's a, there's a sort of there's a sort of um, sort of collective um, self confidence, um, huge amount of self confidence that Britain's lead the vanguard of this technological progress. It's already had these, so the industrial revolution kind of already happened by this time. This is a technological revolution time. The British see themselves at the forefront of this. That. Uh, free trade allied with technology is going to knock down tyrannies and repressive systems so you have so for the british in the in the time of the great exhibition look around the world what do they see europe tyranny has been has become out victorious after the failed revolutions russia is a sort of lowering presence over over europe the united states so 1851 um uncle tom's cabin is published now it doesn't have an immediate effect it doesn't come out in book form till the next year but it, The British look across at the Americans and say, well, there's this experiment in democracy. It's not going awfully well because the slave owners are still uh, reaching the height of their power. Um, And there's no sign that slavery is going to be knocked away. Well, the British sort of pat themselves on the back and say, we're trying to get rid of the slave trade. We're trying to uh, bring freedom to people. We're not doing it by revolution or by democracy. We're doing it in a very managed way by free trade and communication. So those two things, instantaneous trade, communication, that sort of networked world will bring freedom to people, will automatically free them. So it's a bit like America, you know, it's a bit like sort of the spread of liberal democracy in our own time, that, that people see that as a liberating force that doesn't need any other kind of human agency to make it work. So that's why, so 1851, you get the high point of that idea of Britain's destiny in the world is not to be a great imperial power, it's to be a great liberating power. And that's the irony of it, I guess, it's by the end of my period. The empire just getting bigger and bigger yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the British are becoming more bombastic. But at this time, there's this sort of feeling in the air that Britain's kind of leading the march of progress... By, ideas, by you know. ideas and by technology, um, it's completely new. It fe- you know the sort of the feeling of it feels like you're entering a new phase of history, and partly the mark of one of the marks of that is the, is the channel cable. Um, it's a sort of in, increasing sort of technology that's going to sort of take over from the kind of industrial strength, um, and this is you know this is where Britain's going to re. So one of the words, sort of keywords of the book, is rejuvenation or. Um, uh, renovation, so people see the world being rejuvenated by these new forces, all kinds of different people. So the British see this, but throughout the the world, so the book goes to places like Australia or New Zealand or the American Midwest, the American West, um, to Hong Kong or Japan and places like that. But everywhere there's a sense that the world's about to change, but everywhere, for lots of different reasons. The British kind of see it, because the sort of, 1850s really is Britain at the height of its power. Um Britain was never more powerful than in this period. It didn't. The empire was actually quite small compared to its maximum extent, but it, because it's sort of seeing it, they can kind of control the world through the leaves of trade, finance. Um, it can sort of be the kind of you know it can give birth to this kind of world of technology. The British are kind of guiding it, and they're making a lot of money on the side. They don't need to have kind of territorial control. Doesn't end end up like that, obviously. But it's kind of the feeling is. Britain's got this huge pattern. It's got very few rivals around the world. The United States is booming on a colossal scale. Um, it's got its own economic problems, but there's a kind of mushrooming of boom towns. The 1850s is famous for this kind of explosion of, of cities, of what, what the Victorians call wilderness, these sort of cities mm-hmm. spread out. Same in Australia, a place could go from having zero residents to 60,000 in the space of a few months. You know, This is sort of incredible kind of... Um, explosions of populations, and people see that, see the balance of power yes. in the world changing. It's sort of going to the peripheries, to places like Australia and New Zealand. The Mississippi Valley is becoming really important, or California, all these places are kind of having their own booms and yeah. their own kind yeah. of feeling of self-confidence. So it's not just the British, though the British are kind of the leaders of this, and they they pump a lot of credit into the financial credit into pr- making this, sustaining this boom, you yeah, know, yeah. It's sort of fueled by all this debt, <laughs> which is coming from the City of London, partly Wall Street, but mainly the City of London, sort of, you know, is facilitating this, of providing, providing the, the money, the capital for it, for it to happen, providing the insurance, the shipping, you know, all these kind of things that kind of sort of add up to this kind of, sort of phenomenal roaring boom um, um, uh, that sort of characterises this period. So I sort of entered this world of, of sort of boom time yeah. and you see these manifestations of confidence and sort of unease as well that you know some societies are being pressed very hard and in, in this onrush of sort of self-confidence people care less about indigenous people because they're standing in the way of, 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 of this sort of turbocharged progress you know it's a sort of progress so it of takes on its own sort of justification its own energy mm-hmm.
5: um were there parts of the world that particularly benefited from this migration this movement of people
2: well yes australia victoria where the gold rush happens that's one place got a huge amount of people so you get something like um, 1852, is probably the pre- peak year of migration, you get about 370,000 people leaving the British Isles. A lot of them Irish, but a lot of them British, of all classes. So it's over 1,000 people a day. So it's big business wow. moving people around the world, a huge business um, providing the shipping. Ships become faster because people don't want to get to the gold quickly, but they also don't want to spend a long time at sea. So you get these sort of, it's the golden age of the, the Clippers. Mm. So people want to go quickly. So it's sort of... The gold sort of produces a lot of technological innovations to get people there quickly and bring stuff, bring things to people who are... So California is a long way from the rest of the United States. Australia is a long way away from other British colonies. So you get huge amounts of stuff being brought out, people and and and, and goods, manufactured goods, food, building materials. So people are game. So people... So there's a huge amount of knowledge being created. Where do you emigrate to? Where you, where's your best thing? So you get the phenomenon of the booster, the booster town, and say this is going to be the greatest city ever, surrounded by beautiful rivers, it looks beautiful, it's got a huge amount of resources, it's got gold, or it's got timber, or it's got um, uh, some sort of mineral wealth that can be exploited. Um, so people will, will, will buy this information and will come and, um, you know, will, will be attracted. It's a sort of free market of places and, trying to attract migrants to sort of place it might seem out of the way. The people that kind of make money out of it, I mean, the, the people that make money out of the Gold Rush are the people supplying it, um, because miners will pay a lot, not just for necessities of life, food, obviously, but they'll pay for anything that, you know, any sort of luxury that people with gold want to spend money on, whether it's revolvers or sort of fancy snuff boxes or, 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 or the latest fashions. Um, so more... More money spent in California than than golds exported. If you see what I mean, it, it, people are borrowing mm-hmm. on this kind of idea of kind of exponential riches. So shippers make a huge amount of money. Fortunes are created out of nothing. Um, hauliers, are people that can can bring goods from ship to to, to gold camp or boom town. Um, so the gold rushes are quite easy to see how that can happen. Where there's a lot of money going around. There's a lot of you know you're paying in in gold you're paying in ready money essentially for the the finest luxuries the, you know the you know the, the sort of champagne it's a wash of champagne these gold gold rush places so all these things being exported creates huge kind of export markets for, for britain and america and other countries to to supply these things what i found interesting i had fun writing about the gold rush parts of this but you go to some of the places that weren't didn't have gold you find a similar thing happen which is something i found quite surprising in a way so one place i go to is minnesota sounds not like the most interesting um place to write about but in a way it's almost like the heart of the book because minnesota was seen as the american siberia and i pair it with new zealand which was seen as an island of cannibals for the british If the americans minnesota is this kind of out of the way sort of place on the margins on the edge of kind of the civilized world new zealand was Pretty much have the same kind of reputation at the same time in the 1840s. But by the 1850s, these populations in both these places are expanding a huge amount. And, and so you have a city like St. Paul in Minnesota becomes this kind of real Wild West place. It's full of property speculators who are gambling on the future. They're saying that Minnesota has the best prairie land in the world. It's going to provide huge amounts of. Um, of of corn for the world markets it's got a huge amount of lumber, it's at the top of the Mississippi, it's all going to be exported um, just wait for the railway to come but of course no one bothers to build a railway because they're too busy um, speculating on property it's a huge phenomenal property bubble um, so St Paul goes from being a tiny city to a vast city in a very small amount of time and these river boats come up the Mississippi paddle boats before the, in the the season, the summer season between the, when the Mississippi gets too cold to bring ships up, they bring up everything that you know you want and, you know, you have cocktails. You have the most amazing food there. People were drawn. People were drawn as tourists, and not just as settlers. They all came up there. No one really wanted to work in farms or logging camps. They wanted to. They, people were exchanging property deals on the sidewalk. You know, they were making sort of paper fortunes of more millionaires there than any other city right. and it was just it was surrounded by uninhabited or uncultivated land it was, it was still pretty much indian territory but it was a city kind of in the middle of it and that's kind of what i saw as the heart of the 1850s really this huge amount of confidence before any real kind of economic benefit and you know, it was all speculating on the future all believing that the future was where all the good things were going to happen and all this sort of wealth and and uh, prosperity would automatically accrue. Yeah. So I just have no real interest in St. Paul, Minnesota, apart from it's probably a very nice place, before I did this book. But it suddenly sort of took on this importance that it was at the, sort of the epicentre of this kind of boom and represented it so well mm-hmm. um, that people sold it. People wrote these books saying Minnesota's this wonderful, beautiful place. You know you're going to be happy and rich here. There are people on the docks in New York, sort of herding immigrants towards Minnesota, yeah. and then it all goes. Um, there's you know, as we know again in our own time, you know these huge kind of property bubbles, and when they go wrong, they go horribly wrong. Uh, and Minnesota's left with no railways. Suddenly there's a there's a global sort of panic in 1857, and all those millionaires who lived in St. Paul, you know, got this great paper fortune. Suddenly found they couldn't. Get enough credit to buy a bag of flour. Um, the city was almost deserted. Um, there was no. They discovered there was no real sort of economic at the moment. It was all still the sort of potential. Um, so all these people were left high and dry with no, even no even fields, you know, no things yeah. to. Yeah, it was yeah. crazy. They called it a crazy, reckless, sort of mad time of, mm. of speculation. You had to see BC there to to believe it. Yeah. There's, a, there's a photograph. One of his, from the fish, my favourite photograph in the book is. These estate agents, and they are basically a log cabin, but they're wearing the latest fashions, got top hats, <laughs> shiny shoes. They're kind of sitting in the, yeah, they're kind sort of sitting there, looking sort of confident, waiting for you know, waiting for the, for the, the customers to come in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they look so incongruous because they're kind of, you know, kind of get that backdrop. Yeah,
5: yeah, 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 the
2: backdrop with these kind of one it could be into sort of Bond Street or something. I mean, but
5: it's something that interests me about the book is that this gold rush particularly has like a global impact, but also a very specific local impact. in mm. certain hotspots
2: yeah. around the globe. Yes. Is that the case? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the combination of the two, I think. It, it has the global impact, but global impact is huge. Um, uh, creates new shipping lines, creates new markets, but in these sort of local places, it's like Melbourne, it's called Marvellous Melbourne. It's, there's no other city like it in the world for its kind of, fast growth and it's sort of going from a fairly small town to a major world city with very you know fine victorian architecture uh and a place of sort of opportunity so yes these kind of these places accelerate so quickly that those places probably would have become places like san francisco or melbourne various other cities in in those kind of gold regions probably would have developed but it would have happened slower this was like a kind of this is why people felt that the future was happening very quickly, yeah, because, the, the, it was, the, the, exactly. because it was, yeah. because it was creating this thing, and it wasn't so much the gold, it was, the, the gold was kind of like the motives. People going there, when they get there, you know, digging for gold is a pretty horrible occupation, so, you might as well do something else while you're there. You might as well make money doing other things. So people turn their activities to more sort of sustainable, long-term things. So you yeah. get the, the city sort of generates its own pace, mm-hmm. its own kind of momentum aside from the from the gold. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was fascinating. So it was no wonder that people look back on this period later, you know, generations of or later years in the Victorian people, people who were young then look back and saw this as kind of the high point of, of the century, the high point of their lives. Mm-hmm. And it had sort of been poisoned a bit by a kind of more aggressive kind of imperialism towards the end of the 19th century, by bigger sort of economic slumps, tougher times. They look back and this was a kind of, this was a good time to be young, they thought. Yeah, and um, yeah. uh, this, was, this was when everything was happening. It was a time full of hope. So definitely has that kind of. Um, that kind of identity to it yeah. that was important to reflect, I think, in the time, you know, because it could have been just sort of lost in a sort of swamp of <laughs> the broader, the thing. broader yeah, 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 the swamp's probably the wrong word, but like the ble- blamange. So <laughs> that <laughs> you kind expensive. of know these things yeah. about the Victorian time, but putting them in that kind of laying them on top of each other, finding yeah. a kind of, yeah. you know, that they all sort of happen and are kind of interconnected, sort of makes sense. Yeah.
5: You know? Um we touched on it at the start there, slavery, yeah, which was a big deal in terms of the cotton yeah to what extent did slavery kind of powerless
2: so it was, slavery was here it was, it was a it was a difficult thing for the British because they'd spent so much well they were spending so much money and lives really in with the Royal Navy trying to police and prevent the export of slaves from from West Africa but the problem was there's a tension between that and free trade that um, uh they believed in free trade, they hated slavery and they believed in free trade, but those things sort of, you know, it's quite hard to have both those things working together because as soon as they liberalise the sugar duties, the sugar was, the sugar-grown in British colonies by free, enfranchised slaves in the West Indies had preferential treatment in the British market. Opening up, suddenly slave-grown sugar uh, in Cuba and Brazil floods the British market, so Working class people in Britain can afford sugar; yeah. it's much cheaper, but it's grown with slaves. Is the dirty secret, you know. Do you send? Yeah, you know, would it be better just to sink the sugar boats in in the harbor rather than send out people to stop slave trade? Yeah. Same thing with cotton. In the beginning of the nineteenth century, cotton comes from lots of different cotton-growing areas around the world. Cotton powers the Industrial Revolution, but. For the free trade means you'll always, the market doesn't discriminate between slave-grown cotton and free-grown cotton. So it will go to the, 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 the people that are producing it the most. So sort of, that's sort of what I call the heyday, this sort of boom time. You There's the good side to it. There's the, the things we like to remember, the gold rush towns or the, the land rush towns in the Midwest, all these sort of you know, places where there was railways and there was being this boom was being sustained by kind of enterprise, by... Um, by, by, by white pioneers, basically. Yeah. But you forget that the southern American states were reaching the height of their economic power as well. Um, and they were producing so much uh, cotton, which was cultivated by slaves, got to market by slaves. And they were benefiting from the, these railways by telegraphs, by steamboat tr- transportation. So they were fully part of this boom, and they were helping to sus- sustain it. Uh, the British were manufacturing vast quantities of cotton goods they were clothing in the world, basically from, you know, factories in Lancashire. And Manchester was called Cottonopolis. It's a huge company. It was just sucking, by the end of the 1850s, a billion pounds of raw cotton every year. A vast amounts. Yeah. So they couldn't get and they wanted more. And something like 80% of this was supplied from the American South. So these very pious cotton lords who hated slavery... So, well, we don't know where the cotton comes from. It came from these sort of succession of middlemen, and it was powered by these chains of debt, very similar to other parts, other frontiers of the world. And the, 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 the slave cotton frontier was pushing out into Louisiana and, and into East Texas. Uh, the American South was getting this. They, their political power was becoming huge. Their economic, well, their economic power was becoming vast, and they saw themselves as underpinning this whole global boom slave cotton stopped getting to the world market everything would 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 collapse they say their confidence rides higher and higher throughout the 1850s and they say they the Americans have these great sort of slave owning um political oligarchs believe they have Britain over the barrel they're kind of they're so important for this boom that they can they can call the shots so okay people always sort of Believe, uh, this view is kind sort of being reversed now, but people are always going kind to of believe that slavery was reaching the end of its kind of thing, was becoming sort of n- not a very dynamic um, economic force, and it was going to expire anyway. And it was the sort of the, the rise of the North kind of makes slavery important. If you look at it another way, if you read like the Economist from the 1850s, it'll say, "Go if you want to find the greatest entrepreneurs in the world, go to the American South. These people know how to m- get credit from Wall Street or, or the City of London. They know how to." Make fortunes and and get and 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 um, build these kinds of great sort of, sort of debt fuel sort of booms in in cotton production based on slave labor. And how are you going to get rid of this? So this is a problem for for liberal economic thinkers. Yeah. And all they can promise is to slaves is that several generations later the free market will eventually produce a situation, which is which is no good for them. Obviously, no, no, no. but but I mean, over the time people realise how how important this sort of slave. Uh, I say Herman Merivale, who was a great sort of theorist of, of colonies and colonisation, said, if you look at the docks of Liverpool, the factories of, of Manchester, all these sort of great railroads and things like that, you might as well have got the slaves to come and build them. Mm-hmm. It's just a sort of, you know, it's a very dirty secret that, that this wealth is being created by, by slaves. So that's the corollary to this sort of yeah. idea of sort of optimism and progress. And so the, when the... Um, when in, a, in the United States a series of constitutional political crises over slavery, the British begin to see that there's a crisis happening, going to happen in America. So they try and look for alternative supplies of cotton. Mm-hmm. But they never do that. They never, they, they're sort of tied into this kind of horrible pact of the American South. Um, which, is, uh, which is an interesting part of the book, because Britain and America are so closely tied at this period. Their economies are sort of locked together. The North supplying a lot of corn for the British market, the South's providing a lot of, um, a lot of cotton, well, a huge amount of cotton, all of which are becoming very, very important for sustaining boom, The cheap yeah. food, cheap cotton, cheap sort of raw materials, basically. Um, Britain's locked into this kind of relationship with America that wasn't really seen again until the Second World War. It's just this sort of period where... It's the closest they got. Yeah, to the, yeah I, the closest yeah, definitely, since yeah. from the end of... Uh, from the War of Independence to, to the Second World War, this period... They kind of break apart. A bit after the Second World, after the Civil War, they, that kind of relationship breaks down. But it's a very uneasy but very tight relationship where Britain produces a lot of credit for this sort of great boom in American railroads. Yeah. It's sort of funding a lot of it, providing a lot of capital, mm-hmm. providing a lot of providing a lot of immigrants to sort of keep this boom going, and it's taking a lot of raw materials. But they sort of it's very uneasy, mm-hmm. and especially when America begins to fragment politically, the British are sort of left in this difficult sort of situation.
5: Yeah. This is also the period of the Crimean War, of so course. Yep. What's your take on that in this
2: context? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, all those things, all those sort of um, big historical events, although it's a book about economic progress, other things, like, if it's a book about the decade, it has to take account of all those things, like the Crimean War, the Indian mutiny, Italian unification, um, all those kind of big kind of headline events. The Crimean War, the, the way the British approached it, they saw themselves as the vanguard, the leader of, this free trading, technologically advanced nation, and, and Russia was the other. It was the opposite to that. It was this kind of autocratic um, nation, uh, empire that was uh, growing as fast as the British Empire. It was expanding into it had its eyes on parts of China, on Japan, in Central Asia, Afghanistan, Persia, uh, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, that kind of area. All these areas of places that Britain contested, and they saw it, if Russia moved into these places, it would close it off to the sort of the free trade, you know, system that they were trying to create. Um, but they saw there was this sort of um, there's a quote from the time of the Great Exhibition, which says there's going to be a contest between uh, Britain's sort of Great Exhibition and Russia's Great Armies. Which ones are going to prevail? Will it be modern science and technology and liberal values, or will it be vast armies and autocracy and sort of anti-free trading kind of closed protectionist system? Um, So, yeah, so the Crimean War definitely fitted that sort of, um, yeah, those themes of, of progress, technology, but also how do you regenerate, re, how do you regenerate other sort of parts of the world? So the British were sort of had their eye on China and trying to sort of rejuvenate that and Japan um, and sort of Central Asia, all of which are sort of contested sort of an uneasy fault line that sort of ran, ran through the world. Both empires were sort of pressing on each other. Mm-hmm. The flashpoints obviously in the in the in the in the Crimea over the, the, the Ottoman Empire, but it could you know there was, you know, there was sort of proxy wars. So the, 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 the Crimea War becomes this kind of global event. So it definitely plays into the themes of all my books. So without writing too much about the Charge of the Light Brigade or, or Florence Nightingale or the campaign, it's sort of the Crimea War sort of affects everything. It, yeah. it, it affects the gold rush in a way that ships are requisitioned from the run between Liverpool and and, and Melbourne and used to transport ships to the Crimea. It's a war that the British see as, um, um, uh, as being sort of t- a technologically advanced war, so a lot of submarine te- telegraph uh, technologies used, um, a lot of um, uh, you know, new armaments, new ways of communication, new ways of, of, of fighting. Uh, are all used um, to fight this war, and which they see it against the sort of, Russians' I army, mean, a vast amount of the Russians' army with their muskets, is, which isn't entirely true, but it's, it's how it, definitely how it's seen. And we remember those kind of failures of, of the Crimean War, the, of, the, of the early part of the Crimean War. But by the time the British see themselves as, as a sort of liberal state that's not very good for gearing up to war because it doesn't like fighting wars, <laughs> but by the time it's got itself going, it yeah. can do it and run it quite cheaply. So the British are very proud of themselves by the end of the Crimean War, which we kind of forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're ready to go and fight other places. They almost get into a war with the United States. Um, and they want to... Palmerston, British Prime Minister, wants to, um, wants to continue this war to put a line around Russia... Um, and sees the war sort of being continued in, in China and in sort of Manchuria, uh, across Central Asia, uh, even, you know, in, in the Baltic and things like that. But he's, he can't. He, the, the Napoleon III pulls France out of the war, so it becomes impossible. <laughs> yeah. But there's all kinds of places. So another sort of place yeah. I see as a sort of flashpoint in the world is the Caucasus Mountains, mm-hmm. where there was, the British were very allied with a, a, a very fierce, um, very successful Muslim guerrilla fighter called Imam Shamil. Um, who, the the thinking is that the, the Caucasus is this kind of gateway between Europe and Asia. If you can use Shamil this kind of guerrilla fighter to, to sweep out the Russians from the Caucasus mountains, that you've shut Russia off from Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll, you'll see, Imam Shamil becomes this huge sort of forgotten celebrity of the 1850s. Yeah. In Britain, there's lots of, sort of portraits of him. he's sort of venerated lots of books and magazine articles about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a kind of interesting take on the Crimean War because he was the British were going to kind of go to his aid to sort of throw the Russians out of the Caucasus, which was a more strategic place than the Crimea. Yes. But in the end, it never happens. It's a sort of it's a part of the war that never actually happens, but a fascinating way to kind of look at. If you go there, you see the war more and it's global. Yes, because you look okay. further east into Central Asia and yeah. and all that kind of that part of it. So that was quite sort of fun, kind of coming across people like that who uh, who tell you a lot about the time were big at the time but were kind of forgotten forgotten in the sort of the bigger sweep of things yeah
0: are there
5: any other figures who are either forgotten or perhaps heroes of yours
2: from this period oh um, so well the great well the great hero at the time was Garibaldi I think you know he sort of represented so much of that sort of pioneering sort of spirit and he looked and dressed a lot like a lot of the sort of gold rush people all the, all the settlers you know red shirts stout pair of trousers boots revolver you know bearded <laughs> were all sort of, sort of seen as sort of, um, the signature look of the time. Um, I, I, there's, I, there was a, um, a, there's a sort of forgotten character, I think, who, who fits in, he, he's not a hero, of mine, but he's, he's a fascinating character. He's like a Willie Walker, who is a, a very short lawyer from Tennessee, who ends up becoming, with 50 men, becomes a president of Nicaragua.
5: What lessons do you think this period has for us today in the 21st century?
2: Well, I think we're kind of learning the lessons that they learned—that sort of that sort of unbridled confidence and utopianism can have a rather bitter end, mm-hmm. and the technologies that we used were seen as sort of full of hope and freedom and democracy become ways well, of become used by military or by you know surveillance or by government control. Very quickly, those ideas. So we've kind of learned them in a way, but we've sort of retrodden that kind of almost that same trajectory almost those same themes yeah. um yeah i think there's there's no magic answers they thought there were magic answers that, that just by the sheer force of progress the world would change yeah. I, I think when you know well since the financial crash and probably in 2015 2016 we're kind of knowing that you know mm-hmm. yeah the world doesn't always there's no sort of radiant end to it, these tools of kind of um freedom and Democracy don't always it can always end, it can often end in a darker place. Yeah. Yeah.
5: What are your impression of this period? Would you like me to leave the book with?
2: Um, I'd like them. To, I'd like people to see it as this very distinct time of a kind of almost accelerated progress in a very short period of time that that um, a lot of the great sort of inventions or great sort of moments happened very quickly in a kind of cauldron of ideas and progress and things like that that it happened. Quickly, and then a lot of things have played out, of course, over a longer time. But this was just like a, almost a, like a fast forward button had been pressed, mm. and it's a tumultuous, um, exciting, slightly dangerous, and slightly sometimes quite dark time. But it's it, but a time that's full of this kind of energy wherever it animates from. It, it's a kind of energetic time that's very different from how you see the Victorian period.
1: That was Ben Wilson. Heyday, Britain and the Birth of the Modern World is out now in the UK, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. In the US, the book will be published by Basic Books in April with a slightly altered title of Heyday, the 1850s and the Dawn of the Global Age. And you can read more from Matt and Ben in our March edition, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time, when we'll be talking to the philosopher A.C. Grayling about the great changes of the 17th century, while classicist Paul Cartledge will be discussing the history of democracy. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.